Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of kidnapping, murder, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On September 25, 1937, 72-year-old Charles Sherman Ross and his former secretary, Florence Freihage, sat down for dinner at Chicago's Fargo Hotel. Charles was retired from his role as the president of a major greeting card company, but he still kept up with his old colleagues. Over a multi-course meal and a couple of drinks, Charles and Florence reminisced on their working years and talked about their plans for the future. With their bellies full and their heads a little fuzzy, they headed out around 8 p.m. They were nearing Florence's neighborhood when suddenly the pleasant day took a sinister turn. As Charles drove down North Avenue, he noticed another car in the rearview mirror. He kept an eye on it, and he could have sworn it was following him. But that just didn't make sense. Charles didn't have any enemies. The driver behind him probably just wanted to go faster, so he pulled over to let the vehicle pass. The strange car sped up, then swerved in front of them. It nearly ran them off the road before it skidded to a stop. The driver's side door opened and a man stepped out of the vehicle. As he approached, silhouetted against the headlights, Charles spotted the outline of a gun in his hand. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on the kidnapping of Charles Sherman Ross. This week, we'll follow the young FBI as they work to solve the case. With very little evidence, justice seemed like a long shot. But dogged determination and a single $20 bill broke the case wide open. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On the evening of September 25th, 1937, Chicago's outskirts were quiet. Only a few people marked the streets as they headed back into the city. In this hushed expanse, two cars idled on an otherwise abandoned road. 72-year-old businessman Charles Sherman Ross and his colleague, Florence Fryhage, cowered in one vehicle. They watched in horror as a man stepped out of the other car, brandishing a gun. To make matters worse, the armed pursuer wasn't alone. A second man exited the passenger side, both beelined to Charles's door. How much money you got on you? Here, take my wallet. We don't want any trouble. Please, we're just trying to go home. He's got a stack of dough here. You think we should? Yeah. All right. The boss says this is a kidnapping and wants you to come along. What? No, he can't go with you. He has a heart condition. Take him. All right, all right. Easy now. Florence, I'll be fine. Just keep your head down. He's wealthy, ain't he? Think he'd be good for half a million or a quarter million? No, nothing like that. He's retired. Here, I have $85. Take it and just let him go, please. Why, thank you, ma'am. I'll take that. Now, you just stay there till we drive off, all right? Please, don't hurt him. He's a good man. He'll be fine as long as we get the money. Don't you dare call the police after we've gone, or we'll kill him. The kidnappers were armed and dangerous, but Florence wasn't one to be intimidated. As soon as they raced away, she hopped behind the wheel of Charles's car and sped after them. The kidnappers were fast, taking quick turns through the winding back roads. Florence tried to catch up, but soon found herself alone on the dark Chicago streets. With no other options, she pulled over at the first gas station she found, Despite the men's warnings, she called the police. Unfortunately, Florence couldn't give law enforcement many clues. She hadn't gotten a good look at the car's license plates, and she could only describe the attackers vaguely. The man with the gun appeared to lead the situation. He looked fairly young and had curly hair. The second man was a bit shorter than the first. That was all Florence could say. It wasn't much for officers to go on, but it was better than nothing. They opened a case right away and went straight to the person who knew Charles best, his wife. Mrs. Ross had no idea who might have targeted her husband, but she was ready to do anything she could to catch the kidnappers and bring him home. However, as the hours ticked by, she grew increasingly frustrated with local police. Mrs. Ross, I assure you we're doing everything we can to find your husband. He's been missing for more than eight hours. He needs his medication. What exactly are you doing to bring him home? We've notified county and state police with all the details we have. Authorities across Illinois are on the lookout. Can I get you a cup of coffee? I don't need coffee. 
coffee. I need my husband. He's an old man. He could already be dead. Ma'am, cases like this happen all the time. Kidnapping and ransom have been all the rage since the Depression hit. It wouldn't benefit them to hurt your husband. You think this is all for ransom? It's probable. The kidnappers asked about his wealth. Then what in the world am I still doing here? I should be at home in case they call me. Excuse me, I need to go. Mrs. Ross waited by the phone, praying her husband's kidnappers would call. But the hours stretched on and her phone stayed silent. She heard nothing for five full days, until finally, on September 30th, there was a knock at her door. She opened it to see Harvey Brackett, one of her husband's old colleagues. Harvey had received a letter in the mail. It read, I am held for ransom. I have stated I am worth $100,000, including the G.S. Carrington Company stock held in escrow by First National Bank. Try and raise $50,000. Yours, Charles S. Ross. The note contained Charles' handwritten signature. Mrs. Ross knew her husband had authored the letter. That meant he was alive, and they had to do everything they could to bring him home. Further down, the letter gave meticulous instructions for gathering and delivering the $50,000 ransom. The money was to be in small, non-consecutive, unmarked bills. All the cash was to be placed in a leather bag. Once they'd collected the money, Harvey was to hire a motorcycle delivery man from Harley-Davidson. He would then place a coded ad in the Chicago Tribune to signal that the ransom was ready. It would read, Dodge, good condition, no defect. Followed by the amount of money they'd collected, the name of the driver, and his address. Knowing where the driver lived probably provided a kind of insurance for the kidnappers. If he played any tricks during the delivery, they'd know where to find him. The letter made it clear that Mrs. Ross and Harvey were dealing with seasoned criminals, ones who intended to carry out a flawless crime. Mrs. Ross was terrified. Every day without her husband felt like a lifetime, and local police had yet to make any breakthroughs. She needed a more competent team. She contacted the Federal Bureau of Investigations. The agency was still in its infancy, but Director J. Edgar Hoover was serious about cracking down on violent crime. FBI agents arrived at the Ross's home and began collecting evidence. Their goal was to discover the kidnappers' identities, not to comply with their demands. But Mrs. Ross believed that paying the ransom was the best way to bring her husband home. Harvey gathered $25,000, placed a coded ad in the Chicago Tribune, and stood by for further contact. After that, all they could do was wait. Two days passed. Finally, on October 2nd, there was another knock at Mrs. Ross's door. Elton Armitage, another one of Charles's friends, had received a ransom letter in the mail. Again, the note confirmed Charles' well-being and gave instructions for delivering the money. Mrs. Ross and Elton followed the demands exactly. 
They collected another $25,000 and placed the requested ad in the paper. Between him and Harvey, they'd gathered the full ransom of $50,000. Two more notes appeared over the next few days. One arrived in Elton Armitage's mailbox on October 6th. It contained further instructions on how to deliver the money, and it gave Mrs. Ross a new reason for hope. The letter included photographs. There were 10 pictures of Charles Ross posing in a forest, holding a newspaper from October 2nd, 1937. Mrs. Ross's eyes welled up. This was definitive proof that her husband was still alive. Neither his heart condition nor the robbers had taken his life. Yet. On October 8th, 1937, the kidnappers sent their fourth and final letter to Elton Armitage. He brought it straight to Mrs. Ross. Does it say anything new? It starts off with everything set, uh, let's go. That's good, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We have the money. We can pay it right now. Well, the letter says... Charles is upset by the involvement of the FBI, and the kidnappers are too. Oh, I hope they don't get cold feet. What do they care about the FBI? We have the money. The rest of the letter explains how the motorcycle driver should drop off the ransom. It's very complicated. The route goes almost 400 miles. They say they'll approach him at some point during this drive. I don't know how I feel about this. It sounds dangerous. I don't care how it sounds. I just want my husband back. Give me that letter. I want to read it myself. Mrs. Ross was willing to do whatever the kidnappers wanted, but the FBI disagreed. The letters didn't actually get them any closer to solving the case. FBI agents still knew very little about the kidnappers' identities, and they didn't think simply paying the ransom would bring Charles home. Nevertheless, Mrs. Ross refused to back down. At 6 p.m. on October 8, 1937, about two weeks after Charles was kidnapped, she told the delivery man it was time to go. The driver pulled off into the dark night, carrying a small fortune. He wound through the outskirts of Chicago. Within two hours, he was in the middle of nowhere. According to the instructions, he still had hundreds of miles ahead of him, and he had no idea if the kidnappers would actually show up. Even worse, he didn't know if they'd let him live once he dropped off the money. As he wiped the sweat from his forehead, a pair of headlights flashed behind him. His stomach twisted into a knot. The kidnappers were ready to make contact. Coming up, Charles Ross's kidnapping turns into a nationwide manhunt. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. 
all acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. By October 8, 1937, 72-year-old Charles Sherman Ross had been held hostage by a pair of kidnappers for nearly two weeks. Despite the FBI's concerns, his wife, Mrs. Ross, cooperated with the criminal's demands. She hired a motorcycle driver to transport $50,000 across Illinois. When a car pulled up behind the delivery man and flashed its lights, he felt sick to his stomach, but he followed the robber's commands to a T. He tossed the leather bag holding the ransom money to the side of the road. He drove another 300 yards, then stopped got off his motorcycle, and continued on foot. The kidnappers wanted him to walk away while they checked that all the money was in the bag. If anything was out of order, they could easily catch up to him. If they found everything as demanded, they could escape without fear of being followed. The kidnappers must have been satisfied because they accepted the cash. They raced off into the night, leaving the motorcycle driver alone in the cold. According to the letters, Mrs. Ross could expect to have her husband back 24 to 48 hours after dropping off the ransom. But one day passed, then another, and another. And there was still no sign of Charles Sherman Ross. FBI agents were eager to track down the kidnappers, but Mrs. Ross begged them to hold back She didn't want to anger her husband's captors. She hoped that if she just kept waiting, Charles would come back to her. But another week passed with nothing. Mrs. Ross was getting desperate. She only had one card left to play. Almost a month after her husband's disappearance, Mrs. Ross made a statement to the press. Good morning. My client, Mrs. Charles S. Ross, has a statement she'd like to read to you today. I'm here to make a direct plea to my husband's captors. Charles has been in your custody for 23 days. He has a weak heart and needs medical attention. We, meaning myself, my associates, and the authorities, have met all of your demands. Mrs. Ross, have you paid a ransom for your husband? Can you tell us how much? My client is not here to discuss the details of an ongoing investigation. Please let her continue. We have met all of your demands. There has been ample opportunity to return my husband without fear of retribution. We have done all of this in good faith. You, however, have not done the same. Ma'am, what does that mean? Have you been in touch with the kidnappers? 
unless my husband is released and restored to his home by 8 a.m. Tuesday, October 19th, I will request law enforcement officers to proceed with a vigorous effort to locate and punish those responsible for the disappearance of Mr. Ross. Due to the long absence, I believe... I believe those responsible are unable to deliver my husband at this time. Do you believe your husband has been killed? If I don't have my husband back by 8 a.m. Tuesday, God help these criminals. Mrs. Ross and the FBI were still keeping details of the case under wraps. The press didn't know about the ransom letters or the $50,000 payment. They just knew that Charles Ross had yet to come home. On Tuesday, October 19, 1937, Mrs. Ross watched the clock inch closer to 8 a.m. There had been no word from the kidnappers. When the clock struck the hour, Charles Ross remained missing. With a heavy heart, Mrs. Ross acknowledged the sad truth. She'd shelled out $50,000 for nothing. And with no sign of her husband, she could only assume that he was dead. All she could hope for now was justice. She gave the federal government full authority to pursue the culprits. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, began a full-scale investigation. Agent Ladd, what's the latest on the Ross case? Still no word from the kidnappers. I'm writing up the report now. I want this case solved as quickly as possible. Scratch that. I need this case solved. No ifs, ands, or buts. But, sir... What did I just say? Now, I want the serial number of every single bill that Mrs. Ross turned over to the kidnappers. Forward that list to every bank in the country. Federal, local, credit union, I don't care. If the bills cross their desk, I want every serial number checked against our list. Yes, sir. If we catch even a whiff of one of those bills, send agents out immediately. It's my guess these kidnappers, or these murderers as they most likely are, will try to put as much distance between themselves and Chicago as possible. But we'll be right behind them. On it, sir. Hoover was undertaking a huge project. Mrs. Ross had given the kidnappers a total of 5,250 bills. Compiling all of their serial numbers would be extremely tedious. And even once that was done, actually finding matching bills was a long shot. But almost as soon as they compiled and distributed the serial numbers, they caught the first real break in the case. A $10 bill crossed the desk of an insurance agent in Chicago. When checked... It was confirmed to be one of the 5,250 bills paid to the kidnappers. This catapulted agents into a nationwide chase. The FBI crisscrossed the country following bills that popped up in Illinois, Colorado, New York, and Florida. It was a painstaking process that often resulted in dead ends. In large banks, it was difficult to trace who had deposited which bills. But at the very least, agents could track the kidnappers' locations by figuring out which banks they'd used. Still, the process took time. By the end of December 1937, Charles Ross had been missing for three months. Mrs. Ross withdrew into a darkened house, certain that her husband was dead. To the public as well as the media, the case had fizzled out. 
But J. Edgar Hoover wasn't ready to let go. He kept chasing down individual bills, hoping for a breakthrough. Less than a month later, in January 1938, that dogged pursuit paid off. The Bank of America in Los Angeles contacted the FBI, claiming they'd received a number of bills with serial numbers matching those on the ransom list. Hoover raced to California. He and his agents traced the bills from the bank to the Santa Anita racetrack, just 20 miles outside of L.A. Horse races at Santa Anita attracted all kinds of characters. It was possible that the kidnappers had been using their ransom to gamble. But Santa Anita welcomed hundreds, if not thousands, of visitors each race day. Finding the culprits would be a challenge. Sir... I'm not sure how we're going to do this. There are 500 ticket sellers and 500 cashiers here every single race day. So we're looking at uh, probably half a million to a million dollars changing hands each race. That's a lot of bills. We'll need agents stationed at every betting window, posing as change carriers. Every bill they get will be checked against the list. Uh, That's a huge undertaking, sir. We'll need to be patient. Check as many bills as we can. We've seen enough activity from here to the bank. The kidnappers will be back. We just have to wait for them. For almost two weeks, Hoover and his men were stationed behind the betting counters. The days stretched on, with agents checking hundreds of thousands of bills. Finally, on January 14, 1938, a thin man with a sharp face and curly hair walked up to a betting window. He told the clerk, Put 20 on Townsman in the third race. He slid a $20 bill across the counter. The agent scanned the serial number, and it matched one on his list. This could be the man the FBI had been chasing for nearly four months. Up next, the FBI suspect reveals a dark reality. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to our story. On January 14th, 1938, the FBI descended on a suspect at Santa Anita Racetrack near Los Angeles, California. The man had tried to pay for a bet with money from his ransom payment three months earlier. Federal agents had chased Charles Ross's kidnappers from Chicago, Illinois, to the far reaches of the country. Now, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, finally had a suspect in custody. 
Mm, hope that light's not too bright for you. I'm fine. Those handcuffs aren't a bother? Not really. Peter Anders, is that your real name? Sometimes. Usually it's John Seedland. Oh, you've got quite the criminal history, don't you, John? Robbed a restaurant in 34, stole a car in 35, started robbing banks in 36, then moved on to kidnappings. And shouldn't I have a lawyer present? We've got some questions for you about the Charles Ross case. I haven't the slightest idea who that is. Charles Sherman Ross? You kidnapped him on September 25th. You and another fellow. Where is your accomplice, by the way? Lawyer. There's not going to be any lawyer, John. I know you committed this crime. And we're just going to sit here until you confess. Comfortable? Here, I'll pour you some water. For the first few hours of the interrogation, John Seedlin denied any knowledge of the Charles Ross kidnapping. But he'd clearly been involved with the crime. Agents had collected $14,512 from him. Of that sum, $5,620 came from the ransom money. John claimed he'd received the cash from a friend who robbed a bank. Informed possession of stolen money was a crime, but it carried a far lighter sentence than kidnapping. Still, Director Hoover refused to be tricked. The FBI had worked too hard to let their culprit wriggle away now. No one really knows what went on between Hoover and John behind closed doors. But Hoover must have been very convincing because just a few hours later, John Seedland signed a 28-page confession. The document detailed his life of crime and the kidnapping of Charles Ross. Sadly, it also contained a confession to not just one, but two murders. John had indeed killed the wealthy businessman and his own accomplice. Everyone's worst fears were finally confirmed. Charles Sherman Ross was dead. FBI agents now had a new task to track down the businessman's body, and they needed John Seedland's help to do it. John was 27 years old at the time of his arrest, but his criminal career began much earlier. He'd grown up in rural Minnesota and always had a knack for working outdoors. As an adult, he made a living as a blacksmith. But when the Great Depression hit and the iron mines closed, John found himself with no work and no prospects. He retreated to the outdoors, the only place he felt safe. One day, he ran into a man hiding out in the woods. It was Tommy Carroll, a high-up associate in the notorious John Dillinger gang. The two struck up an unlikely friendship... It was enough to inspire John to try out a life of crime. He started with small thefts and soon escalated to bank robberies. On one outing in June 1937, just a few months before Charles Ross's abduction, he picked up a hitchhiker. His passenger was 19-year-old James Gray. Shortly after getting in the car, James pulled out a gun, intending to rob John. A fight broke out, And in the scuffle, a strange respect developed between the two men. Instead of continuing to tussle, they decided to work together. 
Bank robberies and kidnappings were their specialties. They rode through the streets of Chicago, considering new places to stick up. They were always on the lookout for an easy way to make a quick buck. That's exactly how they ended up face-to-face with Charles Ross. But Hoover didn't just want to hear about the crime. He needed to see the scene for himself. So the FBI put John Seedland on a plane to Minnesota, where he'd hinted they'd find Charles Ross's final resting place. Why'd you go to Minnesota after the kidnapping, John? It's home for me. Plus, we figured it was best to put as much distance between us and the scene of the crime as we could. Made it less likely we'd get caught. This was you and James together, right? Yeah. Good kid. Shame he had to go. Can you tell me exactly what it is we'll find out there? Well, I took the typewriter I wrote all those ransom letters on and buried it in the woods out there. I stuffed the case full of about two-thirds of the money Mrs. Ross gave me. I'll take you there first. You buried $30,000 in a typewriter case? Seemed as good a place as any. Then I can show you the hideouts James and I used to keep Mr. Ross. And then you'll bring us to their bodies? Let's not get ahead of ourselves, sir. Hoover and his agents landed with John in Emily, Minnesota. It was the beginning of January, and thick banks of snow and ice covered the ground. Even so, John was able to identify trail markers that pointed the way through the backwoods. By a defunct railroad track, John stopped at a snow-covered pile of dirt. When the agents dug, they found the typewriter case containing $32,645, two-thirds of the money Mrs. Ross had paid in exchange for her husband's life. The group continued through the blanketed woods. John claimed one of the hideouts he kept Charles in was just around the corner. The men trudged through the snow, shielding their eyes against the wind until John came to a stop. The agents pulled back branches and debris to find a small cave. Wood lined the walls, but the floor and ceiling were nothing more than packed dirt. You and James kept Mr. Ross here? It's cozier than it looks. And this is where you killed him? And your accomplice? Don't get too excited, sir. There's a second location a few miles away. I think you'll really want to see it. The second location was over 100 miles away in Spooner, Wisconsin. Agents called for horse-drawn sleds to carry them across the icy distance. On January 20th, 1938, they arrived at a second dugout, slightly larger than the first. As agents peered inside, John made a break for it. He didn't get that far before officers caught him. They tackled him to the ground and marched him back to the dugout. The agents pulled back more branches and found two bodies lying face down in the dirt. One belonged to John's former accomplice, 19-year-old James Gray. And just a few feet away, with a single shot through his head, the FBI finally found the body of 72-year-old Charles Sherman Ross. As the agents surveyed the horrific scene, John Seedland walked them through the crime. On September 25, 1937, John Seedland and James Gray cruised through the Chicago suburbs. 
They'd both undertaken a string of petty thefts and bank robberies, then graduated to kidnappings. That night, they were planning their next crime. But their chatter was interrupted when a large sedan crossed their path. It was a pricey vehicle. The men assumed the passengers were fairly well off. Casing them as easy marks for a quick robbery, John and James followed the car until it pulled over to let them pass. They skidded to a stop and jumped out of their own vehicle. John flashed a gun. They only planned to collect their victims' wallets, but when they got a better look at Charles and Florence, they changed their plans. John and James had a feeling that the elderly businessman was sitting on a fortune, so they flipped the robbery into a kidnapping. They hauled Charles into their car and headed straight to the first hideout in Emily, Minnesota. Charles was forced to wait in the tiny dugout with James while John returned to Chicago to send the ransom letters. Charles begged the kidnappers to only ask for $5,000 in exchange for his return, but John refused. He wanted as much money as he could get. On October 8th, Mrs. Ross and her friends followed the ransom instructions. The kidnappers collected the $50,000 payout from the motorcycle driver. With the cash secured, the two men split their earnings. $20,000 went to James and the other $30,000 to John. With law enforcement on their tails, they knew they needed to stay on the move. On October 9th, they shoved their captive into John's car and trekked to their second hideout in Spooner, Wisconsin. They arrived the next morning and steered Charles into the new hideout. Then something came over James Gray, possibly jealousy over John's larger cut of the ransom money. Just like he had on the first day they met, James attacked his partner. The two struggled throwing punches. At one point, they accidentally pulled Charles into the fray. The elderly man didn't stand a chance. A single errant fist knocked him to the ground. The commotion distracted James for just a moment. As he leaned over Charles's body, it gave John enough time to take the upper hand. In one swift movement, John grabbed his gun and shot his partner. John shot James several more times to make sure he was dead. Then he checked on Charles. The elderly businessman was unconscious. John didn't know how to resuscitate him, and he didn't want to. He reloaded his gun and shot Charles Ross once through the head. John Seedland covered the bodies with dirt and brush. With that, he took all of the ransom money He buried two-thirds of it and kept the rest for a trip across the country. He thought he'd gotten away with his crime until the FBI tracked him down. On January 24, 1938, the FBI brought John Seedland back to Chicago. Because homicide was technically a state crime, he couldn't be charged with murder on the federal level. So a high court judge charged him with violating the federal kidnapping statute. On February 28th, five months after the kidnapping, John pleaded guilty in the United States District Court. Mrs. Ross sat in the audience, desperate to see her husband's killer brought to justice. A judge handed down the harshest possible sentence, death. 
On July 14, 1938, John Henry Seedland was executed. Charles Sherman Ross's murder had been avenged, and his death served as a warning to criminals across the country. No matter how far they ran, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI would track them down. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Kayla Westergaard-Dobson, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Drew Lawn, Melissa Medina, Julian Smith, and Laith Walshlager. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 